Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Sean Keister, who serves as Vice Chancellor of Development and Alumni Relations and President of the UC Davis Foundation. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I want to start uh, by better understanding your career path, Sean. I love learning more about the higher education journey, which oftentimes, and I know in your case, leads to that advancement career path. So take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that Sean? What was he into? And what led him to Penn State University? Yeah, well, uh, I didn't know you were going to go back quite that far. But uh, yeah, so I uh, first gen, I grew up on a farm in rural Pennsylvania. And uh, college seemed like a stretch, although I did well academically, got accepted to Penn State. Sean, can I ask what town and what kind of farm? Oh, um, a small town called Middleburg, Pennsylvania, near Bucknell University, and uh, dairy and poultry farm uh, that's been in my family for a very long time. But uh, first in my family to go to college, uh, got accepted to Penn State, went to Penn State, which was, as it is for many first gens, transformational, um, did well academically, uh, socially. I mean, it's just really the, as cliche as it may sound, best four years of one's life. And, you know, sort of fell into development there as a part-time job. Um, and I was a student caller with Phonathon and uh, had well, every intention. As a first-gen student, you're getting settled, you're doing academics, extra all that stuff. I imagine like when you showed up on campus, you didn't even know that student caller was a job. Oh. So how'd you even find out? And then walk me through like your first week in the call center. Random, total random. Uh, and back then there were, you know, uh, signs on doors uh, that said, uh, you know, part-time job available. Uh, so I applied. Have, I didn't even know what the job was, to be quite honest. I mean, I think the gist of it was you get to talk to alumni. Okay. I'm not even sure at that point, because it was my, it was actually my sophomore year, I got that job. Um, so yeah, interview, got the job. Um, first day calling, I had people yelling at me. I had someone who had just died and the spouse broke down in tears on the call. And I was like, I, I can't do this job. I don't think this is for me. The person sitting next to me who's been a lifelong friend and also a senior leader in development still today, she uh, said, oh, you know, I've been doing this a little while. Come back. It gets easier. So I went back the next night. And from that point forward, um, actually did quite well, raised a lot of money, over a quarter of a million dollars, became a supervisor within the program um, pretty quickly. And, you know, had a management role. I was working 30 plus hours a week in the call center, which was, of course, part of the annual giving program, but did that for three years. And my intention was to go to law school. I was studying for the LSATs and the director of annual giving at the time, Dan Safdig, pulled me aside and said, you know, don't go to law school. You can always do that later. But there are so many jobs in the higher ed development field and it's an emerging field you really should look at this as a career path. And so I took that advice and and sort of the rest is history, I guess. Wow. So tell me more. I mean, I have had many leaders can trace their origin story back to the call center. I would say, I don't know, 20% of the leaders that I've interviewed, 30%, something like that. 
you're the only one who said, and the person sitting next to me is also a senior leader. And who is that? And I mean, that's- so Nancy Smilowitz, who uh, is at Florida State University, uh, and uh, she and I became fast and furious friends and and uh, graduated together and went into this crazy business at the same time. Now, as a first gen student who goes uh, and, and really has, uh, it sounds like a best four years of your lives, plus you're working a lot. I mean, 30 hours as a student is, I mean, th that's a serious commitment. Dan Safdig mentors you a little bit. That's so funny. I've, I've, you know, Dan is probably one of the first people I met, um, you know, once, once I started Evertrue. And at the same time, to then go and move to Tallahassee, that's a big move for a dairy farm kid from Pennsylvania who was just trying to get to college in the first place. And so how'd you end up there versus one of the other thousands of colleges? Yeah, well, it's pretty um, pretty crazy. And, and at that point, uh, once I committed that I was going to apply for jobs in the development field and make that choice as a graduating senior, the spring of my senior year, um, it's actually interesting because back then automation of telemarketing was brand new, which seems crazy, but Penn State was one of the first universities to automate their telemarketing program. And they were constantly hosting other universities to come in and see what it was all about. And um, several- I believe, I believe we call that copy and steal everything, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of it, yes, for sure. But a lot of them were just actually coming to see what automation was about because they probably had a manual program. And did they really want to make this type of investment? So I got lots of job leads from those institutions because if they were about to take that leap, they wanted someone who had experience with the product, right? So um, I really didn't have to apply for jobs. I was sort of sought after at that juncture because it was just a moment in time in the industry where lots of schools were sort of making this leap. So as it turned out, Florida State reached out to me said, would you apply for this job? So yeah, big move. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania farm kid had never been outside of central Pennsylvania because obviously that's also where Penn State is. Um, you know, it was a huge leap, but it was actually kind of exciting actually too. And I think, you know, the idea of moving um, that far away, scary though it was, was also, it was pretty exciting to think about it. And the thing that was most exciting because it was a commitment to the career more than anything was that they had never had a telemarketing program. They were starting one and automating it out of the gates. So I got a startup, you know, I had the opportunity to start a program and automate it at the same time. So huge job. I mean, I was working around the clock that first year uh, on the job. So let's hit pause on Sean's story and let me just ask you this question. Right now, we are hearing everywhere we go, issues around talent recruitment, talent retention, talent pipeline and advancement. And at the same time, I hear stories like the one you just shared and it makes me wonder, why is there not a stronger talent pipeline so that we're finding the Sean's of today and bringing them from 21-year-old college senior to 22-year-old entry-level advancement employee, and that we don't have a line out the door of students who would love to do that job, learning sales skills, learning marketing skills, selling a product that they believe in for their alma mater, or maybe for a different institution as you did at Florida State. Where is the disconnect around talent on-ramp from campus to 
advancement org charts? You know, it, it that's a great question. My own thought on it is many institutions now do have internship programs where they are actively pursuing current students to be in these internships. I do think a lot of schools still utilize their telemarketing programs to identify talent and then sort of mentor, um, much like happened for me, mentor students through that pipeline and get them interested in the business. It's a volume issue. There are just so many jobs in our industry that even though many schools are creating talent fresh out of college, um, mostly through internships, uh, it's just not enough. And, and then just some of them don't pursue it in the end. It was an internship and nothing, nothing less. Some get sort of interested in the field and, and take the leap and work in the field. So it's happening, but there's just not enough. And no one goes to college thinking they're going to become a professional fundraiser. I mean, I used to have to explain to my family what I did because again, first person in my family to go to college, they didn't, no one had a concept of higher ed, let alone that you would do fundraising for higher ed. I, I felt like I had arrived when about 12 years into my career, my cousin, my younger cousin called me and said he was at a job fair at his university. He was a junior. And he said, they listed development as one of the top 10 jobs to get into upon graduation. He goes, now I sort of know what you do. I'm like, yeah, only because, um, you know, he saw a survey that said this was a good industry to jump into. So uh, as a, people are aware. As a fellow first gen farm kid, uh, I, I think the closest you get to philanthropy is like passing the plate at church. 100%. Yeah. You exactly. don't know what the word philanthropy means, nor would you think of that when you're you know, dropping in a few bucks. And so right. um, at the same time, you know, I wonder now, have we over-professionalized this field? Like you've lived during the, you've grown up during the professionalization of advancement. And I think a lot of what you described in your first role was a step forward in professionalizing advancement, automation systems, approaches that hadn't been, you know, done before. But it also sounds like you got a huge job and a ton of responsibility at 22 and in 2023, might we say that that person needs to have six years of advancement experience with XYZ ABC credential versus just saying, let's find somebody like Sean and make them jump in the deep end? Something I talk about all the time, including with my own team members, that I think we have, I, I, I don't know if over-professionalized is the right word, but I do think we have set up um, standards for positions in our industry that are not reasonable, right? Like we don't take chances on talent uh, as much as we should in, in higher ed advancement. Um, I think we want the six years of experience and it has to be higher ed and it has to be at a public university. I mean, it's crazy. We, we are, we're our own worst enemy sometimes when it comes to recruiting. It's a bigger leap to hire someone from a different industry and they learn our industry it's a it's a bigger risk um, that they'll stay, but we can't close that off as an option. I think I think that's one of the problems in our industry. We've become too uh, laser beam focused on the perfect candidate versus taking a chance on some candidates that might have transferable skills um, or growing our own, as you said, because that's a that's a longer process. So you're 22, 23, 24 in Tallahassee, big job, working around the clock. Uh, 
get through a few years and then do, I grew up in Iowa. And so most people in Iowa want to move to Florida. I don't know how many Floridians aspire to move to Iowa. I will say my parents moved from Fort Lauderdale to Postville when I was, uh, you know, a year old. So it has happened before, but you're in that uh, very elite group of people that leave the Sunshine State to go to the Hawkeye State, uh, and in your case, to join the Cyclones. And so tell me about, um, you know, was that part of the network that you had built? And it looks like you got a pretty big job very early in your career at a, uh, you know, large public institution. Yeah, yeah. Again, um, it's not a job I applied for. I uh, came back from a vacation and I had a voicemail from the then foundation president, Phyllis Lepke at Iowa State saying, I got your name. I have a job. I'd like for you to apply for this position. And so I walk into my boss's office and I said, I got this strange voicemail. And she just starts laughing and she goes, well, I'm the one that recommended you for the job. You're ready you could do this. And she, my boss at the time, Marilyn Spores, who is, was and is the greatest mentor I've ever had in this business. Uh, I still, to this day, 30 years later, whenever I make a big, tough decision, I always say, what would Marilyn have done in this position? Um, she was just amazing. And she said, you're ready for it. So I gave him your name. And I said that they should at least talk to you. And then I say to her, but it's Iowa. I know nothing about Iowa. Well, she was an Iowa native. So she said, well, I spent a good chunk of my life there. It's a great place. And, you know, you'll love it. I promise. So I interviewed, got the job, moved to Iowa and uh, spent 14 years there that were probably the best 14 years. Well, among the best 14 years uh, of my life. It was a, a crazy, amazing ride. Uh, the great, great state of Iowa. Fell in love with the place, uh, still deeply admire the place. And so tell me about the state of advancement at Iowa State University when you walked in, recognizing that, um, you know, you also have kind of grown up during this period of public higher education moving from, you know, actually public to largely driven via tuition and, and philanthropy and the, the state contributions getting smaller and smaller as a pr proportion of budget. Yeah. Was that vibe already? I don't know. Was that on the radar when you started? I mean, what was the catalyst for um, Iowa State starting to professionalize their organization. Yeah. So when I got there, they they were already doing a pretty good job, actually. They were in their um, first ever comprehensive campaign, and uh, they were sort of a step ahead of probably a lot of large publics at that moment in time. Um, but it was during that period of time where a lot of the arguments we would make or cases we would make with alumni through the annual fund was dwindling state support and that we had to rely more on philanthropy now more than ever um, because it was during that period where tuition was going up and, and uh, the state was supporting higher ed less. So it was part of the case for support um, even at the annual fund level, which I went in as director of annual giving and um, it, it, we did use that quite a bit. And it was also interesting because the focus was we just need to raise a lot of money. And so um, that was the first real serious conversation about 
dollars versus donors in the annual fund because of this crazy thing called alumni participation, which U.S. News and World Report, you know, has held us hostage with for a couple of decades. And we actually pivoted that annual giving program away from getting $5 from every alum to raising real money. And we grew the dollars exponentially. At the time, we were tracking one of the highest average gifts in the country. We were very focused on bigger gifts, building a pipeline than, you know, getting $5 from everyone. And it was a huge leap to uh, convince the leadership that that was the right way to go. But they were fully supportive because they understood we're going to raise a lot more money and build our pipeline to major gifts faster. So it was actually the first... Um, taste I had in challenging this idea that a, an alumni participation rate meant anything about alumni loyalty. John, can I ask you, you joined in 1995, first week on the job. Did you get an email address or not quite yet? Yes, I did have an email address. First week on the job. So my point is like you are, <laughs> you're, you're showing up like really on the cusp of some strategic bets and changes, but also time zero for the internet. I mean, I mean, college yeah. campuses were the first uh, to, to, to get access to the internet. And so um, point being from the time you showed up, like maybe if you joined in 1994, you might not have had an email address. 1995, you get one. Right. By the time you leave, everybody's on Facebook and a ton of people are on LinkedIn and you sort of rode that technology wave uh, which I'm sure created opportunities, but also um, complexity. And I'm curious when you think about the progress and the fact that you grew the average gift and you grew total revenue, my guess isn't my guess is that that is not because you found some magic technological trick, silver bullet thing, like it was a lot of blocking and tackling. Yeah. And so what can people learn in 2023 from what worked in 1998? as it relates to just growing revenue, growing pipeline, because I suspect with the backdrop of US News, a lot of folks that have been thinking of what's the license plate trick we can do to juice our donor count for $5, like all of that potentially goes away almost overnight, which means right. folks have to start doing the things that you were doing you know, 20 plus years ago. Yeah, I actually think this, this change in... Uh... The rankings and, and the alumni participation metric will cause a lot of programs to rethink and go more likely, I believe, um, less worried about $5 gifts here and there and focus more on quality and pipeline. I suspect, right? I'm already hearing rumblings of that. But that's what we were doing back in 1995, 96, 97 at Iowa State. We did two big things. One, we focused on quality of relationship. That was number one. So we went from an average call time for our telemarketing program of less than two minutes to a focused effort to have a 10 minute conversation with every alum we talked to. And it wasn't just, hi, can you make a gift? It was discussion, dialogue, having a conversation, which we coupled that then with much more aggressive asks and we never asked for a gift under $100. That was the last ask on our conversation. And if the alum said they couldn't do $100, we said, thank you so much. We'll call you again next year. Maybe it'll be a better time. 
So we set the expectation that that's what we felt alumni could and should do, but we also coupled it with a lot of quality. Now, I think you'd argue today having a 10-minute phone conversation with anyone might be next to impossible, but I think today we can still have the, both those principles in the work we do, quality over quantity, and um, not being afraid to ask for a gift. Of, of what you're highlighting, I mean, there are some things. There, there are things that get repeated in this industry over and over, and people just nod their head. You don't question it. For example, this is really a relationship business, and one of the areas that we've been focused on is like, yeah, it is for like 0.3 percent of your giving pyramid. Um, you know, for the thousand people out of a hundred thousand that are assigned, and for half of that group that actually gets to spend 10 minutes or more with their gift officer over the course of the year, it is a relationship business, but it is like wildly transactional for the rest of us. Yeah. And it sounds like you were trying to adjust that in a small way at that time. And that's where I do believe, uh, and, and everybody's lived this, you know, there is a lot of room between two minute transactional call center call and gift officer spending $1,000 to go visit you that you and I are experiencing right now via Zoom. There's certainly other channels that you can um, bring to bear. And I'm hopeful that as we're able to really have the air cover from US News to recenter on quality, um, that there are you know 2023 versions of let's go from two minute transactional to 10 minute more relational. And even between 10 minute relational and somebody spending $1,000 to go and visit you, there's a ton of room for innovation and quality. Completely agree, completely agree. And I think we've we've come to realize that although we may have ignored it because of the pressure we've had to chase a metric, but um, we know, any of us in the business know that it is about the relationship and engagement, right? We've got to engage and stronger engagement leads to giving for some, not all, and the two are correlated. So if we're not, if we're just asking and not engaging, that's a problem. But I think that that's what the focus has been for more than two decades now because of this metric in a magazine. You spent 14 years almost at Iowa State. That's a rare level of tenure in an industry where, you know, the average time for somebody to stay in a role is 18 months or whatever the stat is. What were the ingredients required to keep you committed for that long. It's it's very rare. Yeah, well, opportunity. And it's happened twice uh, in, in your career. Yeah, is- opportunity. I mean, really, um, it was a great opportunity there. I uh, had great leaders of the organization, of different ones at different times. But um, I, I had several promotions during that 14-year period. You know, I, I took over the advancement services operation. I took over the um, we called it development outreach, but it was all the communications, donor relations, advancement services, sort of all of the back office programs. Um, I got to dabble in major gifts. So I literally got to experience sort of all the different tracks that are in our industry um, while I was there. And it was sort of like every three years, um, something new came up an opportunity came up for me. Um, and so there was never a reason to go anywhere else because I was being challenged professionally uh, and able to experience a remarkably broad uh, spectrum of, of um, areas within our industry. 
Did you carry a portfolio during that time? Yeah, uh, small, different, different points in that 14 years, not at every point, not when I was leading advancement services, for example, but uh, there were roles I had there where I, I did carry a small portfolio. And I worked a lot with um, volunteers, the foundation board and other uh, major donor volunteers. The reason that I ask is, um, you know, you clearly kind of grew up in the annual giving lane, um, but oftentimes leaders I've spoken with who grow up in that lane feel this pressure that if I don't do major gift work, if I don't do frontline work, my career opportunities will be limited because ultimately at some point, that's what an interviewing committee is going to want to ask me about. Tell me about raising the big gifts, et cetera, et cetera. What was your experience? Yeah, I mean, that really wasn't the, the case at Iowa State. I, I think um, the, the way it, the 14 years I spent there unfolded really was an acknowledgement by leadership that um, I had these skills in different areas, right? I understood data because I'd spent time in annual giving, thus advancement services. I was a great writer and I understood marketing because of annual giving. That's the communications and donor relations pieces. And then eventually there were major gift programs that reported to me and, and that's where I started dabbling in the major gift work. But I'd already proven, I think, to um, the leadership that I was constantly around volunteers. I was always interacting with our highest level donors. And I, there was never a concern that I couldn't do that. And then you had the opportunity to go home to Penn State. How did that come about? Was it a hard decision uh, or did it feel like the right step? So, you know, it's interesting. Um, it was a little bit of everything. Uh, again, I was recruited. Um, I, I've never applied for a job in my professional career. I've never had to, um, because I think in this business you can get recruited uh, and you know we all get calls every day, but I was recruited um, and because it was Penn State and because of my family being very close by, uh, I listened, right? And it actually, the timing was quite good. I had just finished my PhD at Iowa State, part-time, but I did it. Um, and um, I felt like I had probably done everything I could do at Iowa State at that juncture. Thus, when the call came from Penn State, I listened. Um, my grandmother, who was uh, a huge influence uh, on my life, uh, had just turned 90 years old. And I sort of knew in, in the back of my own mind that this was uh, probably an opportunity to go spend time with her, uh, which she passed away three years later. Um, and I was holding her hand when she passed. Uh, so I sort of think it happened for a reason, maybe more um, a bigger reason than the professional opportunity. But but yeah, it was um, at the time a, a great professional opportunity to go home. And um, they were in a $2 billion campaign. And the portfolio that I would be managing there was actually quite different. I picked up things like plan giving, corporate and foundation relations, which I had never done before. So it was of interest because it really, um, if you look at a checklist of all the things you can do in our industry, it literally completed the checklist. It was principal gifts, plan gifts, uh, corporate and foundation. It still had donor relations and communications and annual giving, uh, prospect research, all of which I had done before. But it, it for me was, wow, 
with this job as the assistant vice president, I will now have dabbled in, been a part of strategically every single piece of the development enterprise. So I went. Very cool and, and beautiful story regarding your uh, your grandmother. And, and at the same time, uh, you then had the opportunity to join UC Davis where you are now. And while I will say at first blush, you might not think Ames, Iowa and Davis, California have a lot in common or Iowa State and UC Davis. There is definitely a, an agricultural connection, right? For sure. 100%. Um, although I believe Davis is like the bicycle capital of America and I believe Ames is not. So there are gonna be some real uh, distinctions as well. Huge move though, uh, to, to, to go all the way to the West Coast. It sometimes feels like a, a, a different country, the time zone wise, it's just a different culture and vibe. Uh, I know you didn't interview for the position because you just said you didn't, but uh, how'd it come about? Well, uh, it, it, again, uh, or I shouldn't say uh, interview, but or, I did um, interview. <laughs> we're, we're presented the opportunity. There was a, there was a search. Um, I said no to the search firm at the time. Uh, I believe there was a failed search. They reopened the position a couple months later. I got a call from the search firm again. And basically, they said the chancellor has gotten your name from someone and she wants to meet you. Uh, no commitment, no, you know, but will you spend two hours with the chancellor? Um, and I said, let me think about it. They called back and they said, what if the chancellor met you in the middle of the country? So the chancellor flew to me. I wow. did take one quick jaunt to meet her for an airport interview. And it was probably 30 minutes into that conversation. In my mind, I was moving sight unseen to Davis, California, because she and I had the most amazing chemistry. She was the most visionary leader I'd ever been in a room with. And it was magic. And we spent two hours. We both almost missed our flights. Um, back but it was i just walked away i picked up my cell phone i called home and said to my husband well i'm done i'm about to board my plane and he said how did it go and i said wow he goes we're moving to california aren't we i said well if all goes well i hope that we are uh it, it was just a remarkable um energy connection and i think in these roles the senior most roles in our business the chemistry with with your fellow leaders at the institution matters a whole lot. So five days later, I was in Davis, California, interviewing for the job. Um, got the offer on the drive to the airport after the interviews said, well, you know, I got to slow down a little bit because I got to get my family out here. We got to make sure this is the right move. But it's funny if you fast forward, we did come back for a second visit and um, it was magic, you know, all the, the checklist, everything got checked. But what's funny about what you said earlier, Brent, was after we moved here, about 30 days later, we're sitting in our backyard in the middle of October, which you can do in California, and said, wow, it feels like we've been here more than a month. And we sort of analyzed why we felt so at home. And literally the words that we said at the same time was, 
um, this feels like Iowa. And it feel, felt like Ames, Iowa, right? The culture, the people, um, is a very Midwestern vibe in uh, Davis, California. Yeah, I mean, also, you know, similar size city, uh, pretty close to yeah. um, Sacramento. Ames is really close to Des Moines. I mean, there's there's more parallels. So many parallels, a remarkable number of parallels, which now, twelve years later, are are still true. It's yeah. it's pretty it's pretty amazing. So, love at first sight with. Uh, Davis, or even before you saw it, um, real leadership connection. When you think about what you were excited about by the challenge, the opportunity, the mission that was put in front of you in 2011, what aspects of that opportunity do you feel like have been realized? And then which aspects are you still saying, ah, we got to get to that? Or Actually, it wasn't quite the opportunity that we thought, and we're now reevaluating what the next ten-year plan yeah. looks. Like. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I have to say that's what you just asked me, Brent. That's my favorite question to be asked, and my favorite question that you've asked me because I can't. What I've learned about myself over my professional career, uh, the four universities I've been at, three of them have been sort of what I would call startups, right? Pretty immature programs where you're able to make something. And one of them was a well-established program. What I've learned about myself is I'm wired that a startup is far more exciting to me than a well-oiled machine, right? So what attracted me to this job was a visionary leader who said, we haven't really focused on fundraising and alumni relations in the history of the university. And we're a top 10 public university. I want a top 10, you know, fundraising program to go along with the reputation of the institution. So it was a startup. It was almost a complete startup, which was a monumental task, but exhilarating at the same time. Um, So it's been the professionally easily the best 12 years of my life. And there has not been a day in 12 years. I haven't woken up saying another day in paradise, both because I'm in California, but also because I work for this absolutely remarkable institution where we're still building a program. Um, We're just about to wrap up a a $2 billion campaign. When I arrived, we were doing a $1 billion campaign. And we finished that ahead of schedule, rolled right into sort of this next campaign. But what's interesting is we've, you know, we've almost tripled fundraising in that time period, sort of our run rate. But what's interesting is the best is still ahead. Like I I, I now say to people we hire in our organization, I used to call us a startup. I'm now referring to us as adolescents. Uh, maybe because I have a nine-year-old daughter, but really I feel like it's, we're adolescents. We're getting good at this, but you know, we're not adults yet. And and that's what's still exciting 12 years in is the upside potential of this institution is unlike anything I've ever seen. And, and we're still building it. It's a long-term play, right? Development work takes time, but I feel like another five to 10 years in this place is just going to explode. Um, with the amazing potential we have. So it's it's exhilarating, really. 
I'm uh, smiling because I am 13 years into the Evertrue uh, journey. And it, you know, it was a startup. It was just me at the very beginning. We're now approaching 200 people. And I have, I've literally used the teenager analogy recently. <laughs> it just feels like we are, we are making progress. And at the same time, the amount of change that, you know, you can experience between the ages of 13 and 20 is like becoming an adult. And, and I, I love the analogy. I feel it. Uh, and I feel that that exhilaration um, as well. And 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 at the same time, um, when you when you think back of like the most important moves that you've made during the startup phase, you know, there's the initial period, which is literally just understanding the place, the basics, the history, the you know key relationships, the deans, and all the other people that you got to get to know. But when you think about the action plan, if you had to, I don't know, break it down into a couple of phases, you know, what really needed to happen during the first couple of years versus the ensuing few years to be able to feel the both pride in the progress that you've made and still be that confident in the potential? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Um, there was just so much, it was overwhelming. So you really had to say, these are all the things we need to do, but then you had to really stop and say, but what has to come first? What can wait? You know, what's second, what's 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 fifth and on the list of to-dos? And we really focused on building the right culture first. And we did a lot of hiring. So those were sort of the first two things because we're way, way understaffed. But um I would say three things, culture, staffing, and data. Like, what does the data tell us? And we did a significant amount of data uh, analysis to say, well, where, where's our potential? Where should we be hiring? Where do we need to invest um, across the institution? So data-driven decision-making. In fact, I say that so often that People are probably really sick and tired of me saying it, but we always go back to it. If someone comes to me and says, hey, we want to hire another fundraiser. I'm like, we make data-driven decisions, which means does the data tell us we need another fundraiser in your area, for example? But we started with culture and we said, what type of organization do we want to be? Because we're going to build this while we're in a billion-dollar campaign nonetheless, but we're going to build it. And we decided, me and the few other, you know, senior folks, and, and really it was actually organization-wide, but we were a pretty small organization compared to 300 plus today. Um, we said there were certain things that had to hold true. Teamwork and collaboration, period. We're not ever going to compete against each other within the organization. So we embedded that. We said an entrepreneurial spirit, creativity matters. And we're never going to waver on that. Same old, same old will never be part of our culture. So we're going to try new things. We're going to take risks. Some will fail. Some will succeed wildly. But we're never going to be afraid to try new things. Um, those two things were part of the DNA from day one. And I think today we still celebrate both of those as our culture being donor-centered um, and, and collaborative team players and willing to try new things. So that's where we started with culture. We staffed to that because then we could say to every single new hire, these are the things, these are our principles. These are the things that matter to us. And then we always went back to the data to drive the decisions we were making. That's sort of how we got through those first two to three years. When you think about 
moments over the last, let's call it uh, almost 12 years now, where you, you've been the, the proudest of the team or the proudest of the institution, where you feel like you've really unlocked philanthropic potential or been able to generate impact that otherwise wouldn't have happened? Are there moments, specific gifts, specific relationships where you start to where you started to feel like, wow, we are making progress here. Yeah, um, there are. And, and a lot of them are team wins, like really across the entire organization. But um, there's one that for me, personally, for me, was, was and is still the most remarkable moment of my professional career. Uh, when my first week on the job, I was meeting the foundation board members and I had a board member sort of corner me and say, we don't do a very good job here at stewardship, at thanking donors. I've made several gifts. I haven't been thanked. I didn't even get a receipt for one of them. Like it was a little messy. And I knew, I knew that that's what I was walking into. But, you know, I was brand new on the job. And here I have this major donors board member cornering me, sort of not threatening, but in essence, telling me, you better fix this quick or I'm walking. And I took that so serious and that was my project. And we knew there were things we had to fix and we did, but that donor was, was really my pet project. And she and I became incredibly close. Needless to say, to make a long story a lot shorter, um, a year later, about 18 months later, she made a million dollar commitment. And then uh, two years after that, she was diagnosed with terminal cancer and called the chancellor and I two weeks before her passing to inform us that she was leaving her entire estate to us. And she wanted to have the first building facility on our campus to bear the name of a woman who happened to be an alum of the institution. She was the first. And that, you know, to me, it's the most remarkable thing that I've been able to do in my professional career. Not the biggest gift, not the showiest, you know, high profile donor, but still the most room. Because I know none of that would have happened had we not fixed what we found at the beginning. And in the end, it was a win-win. It was a win for the institution, but it was also a win for this donor who was deeply passionate about this place and really wanted to make a difference. Well, you painted a really clear before picture, didn't even get a receipt, not feeling like I'm getting any attention, not being, just not feeling a sense of gratitude is what I'm hearing. Correct. What was the after, you know, prior to the two weeks and the decision to, you know, leave the entire estate, there was a journey to go from disgruntled, dissatisfied, negative donor experience to getting a little bit better to becoming transformational and like, what were the mile, like, what did, what is the before and after that she experienced? And then how did you think about that scaling more broadly to other donors who probably felt the same way, but yeah. weren't in the corner year at the board meeting? Yeah, it was both. I mean, we, we looked at it at the individual level, but also the scalable level. I mean, we knew we had issues. We, you know, really got our, our stewardship and donor relationship early on lockdown state-of-the-art, fix it, create standards um, for all donors. So that was sort of step one, which doing that 
helped with this particular donor at a base level. But then we did personalized stewardship, um, you know, thank yous from the students who she was supporting, information about the students she was supporting through scholarships, the earlier gifts. Um, then we, we, we would do personalized videos, video messages from the students who were first gen studying abroad because she her million, first million dollar gift was to support study abroad initiatives because she felt that was important for students to experience. You know, these life altering um, experiences these students have because of this donor and her being able to meet them because this was really important to her. Like we really met her where she needed to be met. Yeah. said, what do you want? Well, I'd love to meet my students. Okay, we can arrange that. And we made those things happen. Um, and, and, you know, in the end, I think it was a lot of the personalized stewardship. Obviously, the chancellor developed a very strong relationship with this individual. I had a really honest, candid relationship with this individual that was over, you know, five, six, seven years that it goes back to what we said at the very beginning of this. We work in a relationship building business. It's amazing, you know, Sean, and a lot of what what you're describing, you know, certainly inspires our work. Like, how do we make more people feel like that more consistently? How do we make it almost impossible for people to fall through the cracks? And then there's a sliding scale of true, authentic, like deeply personalized work that you can do at that part of the giving pyramid. But how do you get closer to that for more people? Um, at the same time, Time is flying in our conversation. I want to be respectful of uh, the schedule here, but let's just shift to this U.S. news decision um, because I think it's going to have implications for where do we invest our limited time and capital to make the bets that are going to achieve the goals that we want to achieve. And one of the biggest issues for advancement leaders, like marketing sales 101, identify your target market, the narrower and the more targeted, the better. And then you can really craft your messaging around that specific persona, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You are in one of the only roles in one of the only industries where your charter is essentially do it all for everyone. Old, young, wealthy and less wealthy, in your backyard and global. It's, it's, it's like your target market is humans on earth. And like that is very, very broad. I talked to one advancement leader this week who said, look, the second that U.S. News and World Report announcement was made, we are cutting all of the stuff we were doing at the low end of the giving pyramid and reinvesting it as high as we can into pipeline, discovery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a trade-off between do I want to take that money and invest it in marketing, the kind of marketing where you grew up in the industry, or do I want to invest it in sales? which is going to go get that $2 billion or is there something in between? Like, is it just as simple as this is the air cover you needed advancement leaders, kill the annual fund, focus on big gifts, the end. Well, that would be silly in my opinion um, to do the latter because obviously you need a pipeline. And um, I, so, so what's going to happen, I think because of this decision from us news and world report is you're going to see lots of behavior changes that doesn't necessarily mean the right decisions, but lots of behavior changes. Um, I think there's an in-between, there's a balancing act here that this offers us. What we won't have to do now 
some, and I, I say collectively, some schools haven't been doing this, but some have, many have, is chasing things that aren't real, right? Getting a lot of $5 gifts or- gimmicky, I love the gimmicky, license plates. Right, gimmicky ways of tricking people into counting as a donor. That stuff can go away now, I think, which then allows us to refocus energy and resources in actually identifying philanthropists. Now, I think we need to be identifying philanthropists at all levels because the $100 donor of today very well might be the million dollar donor of tomorrow. So I, I would think it would be short-sighted to only now focus on you know the high end of the pyramid. We still got to build the base, but not everyone's philanthropic. Um, and some people's philanthropy and their value systems aren't geared towards higher ed. So that's where I think we can learn through testing and and getting in front of our different markets, you know, there are some alumni who, no matter what we do, are never going to give to us. So do I need to invest in them? Maybe not as much, maybe not at all. Why not invest in markets where the data tells me they're better markets? Like right now, one of the strongest markets in higher ed are parents because they're Gen Xers and they're helicopter parents. So they're very dialed into their kids' education. They're the best prospects, I believe, right now, both at the annual fund, but in a lot of cases at the major gift levels. And, and, and we haven't been focusing on them because we're chasing an alumni participation rate. I'll invest where the data tells me I'm going to get my best ROI. That might be parents right now for both the annual fund and major gifts. Doesn't mean I ignore the alumni, still got to go after them. But I'm at an institution where only 20% of the money we raise comes from alumni. We've got the number one vet school um, in the country, number two in the world. So we have a lot of grateful clients. We have a very robust health system. We have a lot of grateful patients. Half the money we raise every year comes from grateful clients and grateful patients. They're also half of our annual fund donors every year. So we really um, focus on where we're going to get the best ROI without losing sight of the fact you got to start somewhere and you still need an annual fund. Absolutely. You can have a more sophisticated, more strategic annual fund, I think, now that U.S. News and World Report isn't sort of forcing us in directions that may have been less productive, but you still need it. If that pressure for alumni participation hadn't been there over the last 10 years, maybe given, giving days wouldn't have gotten all the attention that they've gotten, or maybe they would because it's really important to do the things that you just said. I'm wondering, like, are there big thematic areas or trends like that where you would say, I now predict that by 2030, all the focus we put in the 2010s around this will be reduced and it might be reallocated, like you just said, parents, or like you could go have an absolutely stellar, grateful patient effort take money that had historically been chasing license plates, reallocate it to parent and grateful patient and grateful client, grow the pipeline, maybe overall donor count declines, but it's a way healthier organization. You couldn't have done that five years ago because of the APR pressure. I think what you just said is correct. I think that's where we now have a, a wonderful opportunity. I do think it's tricky, though, because um, I've learned the hard way. Don't ever predict what's going to happen in 10 years, because about 10 years ago, 
I was very publicly saying these give days, I don't know. I don't know if they're sustainable. And, you know, lo and behold, it's been arguably the biggest and best thing that's happened to higher ed annual funds this last decade. Um, so I was wrong. And I now openly admit how wrong I was. I mean, let's just say if you look at the data, though, you might I mean, you could also have a headline that says since investing heavily in giving days a decade ago. Donor count has fallen by 50% to higher education advancement organizations. Like, I don't really know, like, without a doubt, there's been a ton of attention and focus yeah. momentum. I don't know for like healthier advancement organizations 10 years later. I don't know if you can know. Well, I think the interesting thing about give days, though, and I'll, I'll say two things that make me believe they're important and have been value added. The data tells us they that give day donors are retained at higher levels than other donors. So donor retention is an important metric and they got it. So I think there's some there there and I'm very supportive of these type of programs. The other piece, though, is we're getting a generation of donors we've never been able to get before. I mean, it's interesting when you look at philanthropy in the United States, a lot of donors respond to sense of urgency. In higher ed, we have never been able to create a sense of urgency. We used to talk about it before give days. It's like, how do we create this sense of urgency? Because some donors are motivated by that. And those donors were sitting on the sidelines for us. Give days gave us that. And I think we got a whole different generation of donors we never, ever would have gotten before. And I think it's evident in the fact that a lot of Give Day donors, that's the only time of year they give and they give every single year at Give Day. So I think we've—I think that they've given us a tool to attract a different type of donor. Um, so yeah, it's it, again, data is like now the data. We, you know, maybe we can apply that strategy to parents or we can apply it to grateful patients or grateful clients in right. a way that in the past, we might not have, you know, brought under the tent because, you know, we were chasing APR. Really good discussion, Sean. Thank you so much for your time. Um, before we conclude, you've already shared a lot about why you're um, so excited about what you've accomplished, but where you can go from here. Are you hiring? If people want to be in touch with you, you've got a great audience here. So um, uh, please feel free to, to share any message in regards to that with, with the well, uh, we're, we're always hiring, uh, aren't we all always hiring? But yes, and, and UC Davis is uh, a great place to be both geographically, but also for people who want to make a difference, uh, who want to be at the forefront of the things that matter. One of the interesting things about our institution is, you know, if you look at what we're really, really good at, it's things around climate change, um, sustainability, animal to human health, um, some of our greatest strengths are in those areas. So we do unprecedented research here. A lot of the philanthropy we do here is very focused on the grand challenges, the big challenges that society faces. So I think we're a great fit for people who care about those, those things. Um, and as I said earlier, we're adolescents. So we've got nowhere to go but up. Love it. Well, here's to... Uh... Reaching New Heights, Sean, I really appreciate your time and all that you've done, uh, both directly with your institutions, but as a leader and contributor as part of the case community and more broadly, um, thank you for, for that work. And I would really encourage everybody, reach out to Sean on LinkedIn, easy to find, amazing network, uh, and mention that you, you heard him uh, here on the podcast. So thank you, Sean. With that, I'm going to close today's uh, episode. Really pleased to be able to show uh, to host Sean Keister, 
who serves as Vice Chancellor of Development and Alumni Relations uh, and President at the UC Davis Foundation. Thanks, Sean, and take care, everybody. Thank you.